in terms of us being able to move forward, I think that there's a tremendous contribution that art can make. You know, with these stories, it was this opportunity to give my father another day fishing with his grandfather, another day learning from his father. These elders are so significant. Without the commitment to oral tradition and, and the passing of stories that we used to have, I was concerned that these people who played an incredible role in making sure our knowledge remained alive through the potlatch band, through the residential schools, I wanted them to continue to be honored in our communities. And this was the only way I knew how to do that was to make sure that their stories were written down and the roles that they played were remembered. Welcome to Walking in Relation, Indigenous Pathways Through Education. Within Indigenous communities, education has always been a community role and responsibility. Our interconnectedness and relationship to each other, to the land, to the waterways, the human, and the more than human, is what makes Indigenous communities whole. This gives us a holistic framework of how education could be if we shifted our gaze away from the Western colonial worldview. This concept of being together as one, learning from each other is core to the understanding of Indigenous worldview. By pausing, listening, and reflecting on our surroundings, we will be able to start to understand how much colonialism has taken away from all of us not just Indigenous people. We are inviting you to sit with us as we speak to Indigenous educators as they share their understandings and perspectives about education. I'm inviting you to open up your heart and your mind to leave stereotypes and judgments at the door. This work is asking you to be a witness and a participant in the hopes that we can shift your understandings of what education could be. Hello and welcome back. Today we have a wonderful guest and someone who I consider a dear friend joining us today, Dr. Sarah Davison. Would you like to introduce yourself for us today? Sure. Um, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm actually super excited to be here and to talk to you about, I, I actually have no idea what we're going to, where we're going to end up, but I'm super excited to go there with you. And um, my name is Anjak Gusandlans, which means Killer Whale Woman of the Dawn. And um, my, uh, my father is Otsandlans, which means Eagle of the Dawn. And uh, he is from the Chaw clan um, in Old Masset on Haida Gwaii. Uh, my mother identifies as a colonizer and uh, her name is Susan Davidson, and she is uh, she was adopted by my great grandmother, my father's grandmother, um, into the Yakut Janas clan, and the Hider Matrilineal, which means we follow our mothers. And so, because of that adoption, my brother and I were um, are part of the Yakut Lanas Yakut Janas uh, Raven clan uh, from Haida Gwaii. And I'm right now. I'm I'm on the traditional ancestral and unceded territory of the Stalo people. Thank you so much. So 
Yeah, I don't know where our conversation is going to go today either. But what I would really like to focus in on is your love of literacy and how that has evolved over time. And um, what I'm really interested in and hoping that our listeners are also interested in is um, your your Potlatches pedagogy book. And that connects to your new picture books that you've been working on with, uh, with your family, not just your dad, but your family. Mm. Um, and I would love... It, if you could help me understand a, a bit about the making journey and the process for you um, when creating creating this. And then the, the second question is, what are the gifts that you've been given from that? Okay. <laughs> so um, I, I think I'll start back maybe a little ways. And um, so I was a, a classroom teacher for many years um, in on Haida Gwaii and in the Yukon. And I was noticing that a lot of the students in my classes uh, were struggling with, and I'm, when I say literacy, I'm gonna sp specifically speak about text-based literacy. Um, that's not saying that that's better than any other form of literacy, but just to sort of keep it keep it a little bit compact, that, that's what I'm talking about in the, in the context of this conversation. And one of the things that I was noticing is that so many of the students were um, struggling to to be able to access um, opportunities in their lives because of struggles they were having with print literacy. And this is not to put it on the students, but um, that that we as educators were not meeting their needs. We were not able to support them to engage in, you know, with with print literacies in a way that was um, uh, meaningful to them. And it was creating barriers for them. And uh, one of the things that happened for me was that, you know, I started looking at the graduation rates and I started looking at what, you know, things that were the, I want to say the kind of mainstream measures of quote unquote success. And I felt we need to be able to do better. And um, that that sort of, I mean, I've always been passionate about reading, but for me, seeing that people's opportunities and specifically Indigenous students' opportunities were being limited um, because of our failure to meet their needs um, was really problematic to me. And so I, I did, I went, I went and did a diploma and a, a master's and, a, and a, eventually a doctorate in literacy education, specifically with an interest in finding ways to better support Indigenous students. And one of the things that happened for me at the end of my doctorate, I, I went into the, the, the doctorate sort of with this idea that I would be able to learn about ways to um, shift the, our approaches to literacy, specifically that in ways that might be more meaningful for Indigenous students. And at the end of the program, this is nothing against the program I took, but I still found that I had so many questions. And um, I was sort of nearing the end of my studies and I didn't have any more courses to take. And I was, you know, sort of wondering, you know, where am I going to get these answers? And I remembered that my father had talked about, um, you know, his experience, and I talk about this in Potlatch's Pedagogy, but this experience of, um, you know, he had to go away to Vancouver to finish his high school because the, the school, does, was it was, um, there, there were not enough students to be able to offer grade 12. So he had gone away and he had stayed with um, a family in, in Vancouver to, to complete his high school. And 
that story, you know, it's it when we hear stories when we're young, we don't really think about what what they mean. And as I got older and then as an educator looking back on that story, it was really significant to me. And I started to wonder like, you know, what happened in his education experiences and his family experiences that led to him making the decision to leave his home community to finish high school. Like what was it in him that led to to being that committed to completing what a, a mainstream education. And so um, I, I ended up, I had for, for, um, for my comprehensive exams, I had to write different uh, papers and, and I had this opportunity to sort of talk to my father. And I thought, you know, this may have, this may be, provide me with some of the, the knowledge that I'm looking for um, that I'm not able to get in this mainstream um, institution. And so it was really powerful for me to engage in that experience. And, and when I've talked to youth, I've often talked to them about that, you know, like that, that moment where I realized, yes, I, you know, I had, you know, all this knowledge from this mainstream institution, but here I was seeking knowledge from, and my father would never call himself an elder, but I was going to family because I felt that he had knowledge that I wasn't able to access in this mainstream institution. And so our our conversations began about uh, education and, and conversations about learning. And um, I think it was, you know, I was just sort of interested in like, you know, what were his learning experiences at home? And, um, you know, how did those lead to him pursuing this, uh, you know, going to Vancouver to finish his school? And, and I always joke that I sort of went to the, you know, went, went to talk to him for this top 10 list of things that I could do as an educator um, to be able to support the students in my class. And what I ended up, what ended up happening was that he told me all of these stories about him learning and these experiences of learning. And, and so I, I mean, I listened to them and at the time, I wasn't really aware of what what was happening. I think it was just this experience of, you know, I've asked my father these questions, and in response, he's told me these these beautiful stories of of learning um, on the land, on the water, um, from family, from you know, from his grandfather, um, from his uncles, and from his father. And so, for me, at the time, I didn't kind of realized the significance of what he was sharing with me. I was sort of looking at it. And and so then I sat with those stories and I started realizing there were some themes to those stories. And um, so we had those conversations and then he started to segue into conversations about the poll raising and the, the sharing of ceremonial knowledge. And it was really hard for me to do, but I, I realized that I had to um, ask him to pause. <laughs> and then we collaborated on the article, um, Make Your Mind Strong and uh, My Father's uh, Insights into Academic Success. And that was just sort of, that, that might have been the, the beginning of thinking about those stories uh, in, in connection with the themes that had, had, had been in those stories. And so when you, when you look at that piece, it was, it was really focused on learning experiences that not necessarily connected to ceremonial knowledge. And so I sort of always hoped that we'd go back and have more conversations about the poll raising and sharing of ceremonial knowledge. And so 
um, I thought we'd write another article. And so then, you know, we, the time came in, I think it was about 2016, 2017, 2017, that we started having more conversations. And he was sharing with me um, the, the story of the poll raising. And um, I think, I mean, I'd heard those stories as a child, but, but hearing them, you know, where I was in as an educator, hearing them as a, a daughter, <laughs> Um, as an older daughter and as someone who's thinking about Indigenous children and, and my family, my nieces, my nephews, um, I think that the stories landed differently for me. And so he he started talking about um, the poll raising and he talked about the elders. He talked about the sharing of the knowledge. And I realized that that this was more than a second article. This was not a follow-up article. This was something, it was an opportunity for educators to learn about the depth of Indigenous knowledges. And um, at the time I was working with educators and, um, you know, teaching mandatory Indigenous education courses. And what I found um, was that I, I wasn't able to um, help them to understand the depth of Indigenous knowledges and this, this sort of, uh, you know, there was sort of this superficial engagement and this is not a, a criticism of people. It was sort of where we were at. Um, you know, there was sort of this eagerness to bring Indigenous content and knowledge into the classroom and we weren't necessarily thinking uh, about what that meant, thinking about supporting folks to engage deeply and to understand the significance of what was being done. And so I saw it being taken up in ways that were really unsettling and uncomfortable for me. Um, and I was concerned, quite honestly, about the knowledge that was being brought into classrooms and not being, uh, there's a phrase I use sometimes, like held gently. And I, I am not suggesting that people were deliberately harming or, you know, um, being disrespectful of the knowledge, but I felt like that there was an opportunity for more education so that folks knew uh, um, a little bit more about what it was and the significance of what, of what it was when they were bringing that knowledge into the classrooms. And so um, it kind of mirrored this, uh, the story of my father and, and he describes that when he went in and, and so what he had decided is that he would go and um, raise a poll in in his home community of Old Masset. And it was sort of, it was the first poll after the potlatch ban. And um, during the, the potlatch ban, so much knowledge was uh, suppressed, but also carried by the elders. And so this, this poll raising provided an opportunity for, um, for the community to kind of come together, for the elders to come together. And they sort of had these, my father describes it, that each person had a thread of knowledge. And when they came together, they all their threads formed a thick rope. And so there was this opportunity to connect to this older knowledge um, and to to bring it back into the community. And so he, he describes himself as this smart alecky young kid coming in with and all he had was the pole. And I felt like that mirrored what I was seeing in classrooms where where people were just sort of bringing things in and so through the process of both carving and then raising the pole and the ceremony that was involved, my father came to this much deeper understanding. And I guess my hope was in telling the story of Potlatch's pedagogy, 
that I, I hoped that educators could sort of connect or, you know, see themselves alongside my father and hopefully um, think more about what they were doing in the classroom. And I didn't think too much about the book when I was working on it with my father. Um, I think um, I, I didn't realize the power that stories had in my own life. And then I also didn't realize the power of stories to, to um, connect with others. And I mean, I sort of seen it, sort of experienced it, but through Potlatch's pedagogy, when it was um, shared more broadly with the world, um, there was a there was a a transformation that happened in my understanding of of the power of stories and how they could um, ultimately like educate but also heal. And um, so that that sort of we I don't know I guess we've sort of brought that collaboration maybe to a bit of a close and then I started to to sort of think about the the potential for those stories that my father shared with me to become these picture books and so part of that for me is I you know when I was growing up in school um I I don't I don't remember having positive uh, interactions with books about Indigenous people. I do remember being read uh, Island of the Blue Dolphins when I was in grade six. Um, don't recommend that book, <laughs> but I do have that memory. And I think, um, you know, but there were never, I never had uh, a connection uh, to literature that was, you know, within a, within my school where I felt positive or good about my identity as an Indigenous or a Haida, Haida woman or girl. And so um, this idea of writing a picture book, um, I thought, oh, I wonder, you know, I wonder if, the, if the, they, there would be an interest in that. And sort of, I was getting excited about the fact that, that this had the potential for, for children to see themselves in their, in their, um, in the literature that was being shared in their classrooms. Um, I saw the potential for us to have different stories about Indigenous peoples because in Canada, there are so many negative, incorrect, false information stories that, and, and you know, are information without context that is shared. And I guess I hoped that if we had these other stories to share, that people might engage differently or think more about um, how they're consuming information about Indigenous peoples. And I think about my own experience, a lot of my negative um, beliefs about myself and Indigenous peoples came from those same messages. And so I often wonder what, what my, how my life might have been different, how my sense of myself, my family, my community might have been different if I had connected with these stories. And so I approached um, the publisher and said, hey, <laughs> would you be interested in this story? And they said, yes. And would you be able to do four? <laughs> and um, and I, I sort of had an idea for one story, which was the Jigging for Halibut with Chinny. And it's about my, my father and his grandfather going up fishing. And I didn't have four ideas. And I don't actually know how it happened. But eventually, I sort of thought, you know, this is this amazing opportunity to to really demonstrate or illustrate intergenerational knowledge and sharing and teaching. And so the books 
Um, the first book is Jigging for Halibut with Chinny, and it's about my father as a grandson, and he's jigging for halibut with his his grandfather, his Chinny. And in the second book, um, my father is it's, uh, learning to carve argillite. My father's a son. He's learning to carve argillite from his father and uh, also his grandfather. And um, then in the third book, uh, it's a book about my brother and I at the Yakun River, uh, learning to fish with my father as a father. And in the last book, it's uh, about a potlatch that my father and my stepmother hosted in Heidelberg, Alaska. And it, um, it's a story about um, dancing with my brother for the last time. And this idea of both the, you know, the potlatch and um, this opportunity to connect with our ancestors. And um, so in that book, my father is a grandfather. And so my, my brother's children are there and this idea again of sharing. And so books one and three are really focused on land-based teaching and books two and four are based on cultural and, and art um, connections in teaching. And so uh, the idea for those books was that, um, that they would be another opportunity for people to engage with um, um, indigenous pedagogies. And that, that I was hopeful that educators would read them to students and have this opportunity to, to join my father and his grandfather fishing and be kind of immersed in that experience and, um, and just un, maybe have a different understanding of um, Indigenous knowledges, Indigenous pedagogies, intergenerational learning that is so significant in our communities. And because I'm a literacy person, they're also, um, they're, they're kind of thousand word narrative, narrative essays. And so my hope was that with older students, um, that it may inspire them to tell their family stories, to share their family stories with others, and perhaps to have, you know, some of those relationships or those connections that I felt with my father and um, my brother and different people who helped me to, to share these stories. I, I did interviews and, and, um, and so I, I, I guess my hope is that, that more people will feel um, inspired to, to connect with their families, their communities, and to share some of those stories, those experiences, because they're not really, they're not significant in a, in a kind of, in, in the sense that something happened that never happened before in these stories. They're, they're, they're capturing these moments, um, these relationships. And, um, and I think those are really powerful stories for us to share. And so I, I, it's, it's kind of my hope that, um, it's my hope that, that people will continue to share, share their stories and, and um, perhaps have some of the same um, healing or, or, um, I don't know, I, just that, that connection and that sense of community. I think through the pandemic, we've become really disconnected from one another. And so being able to connect through stories has been really, really powerful in my life. And, and I, I guess I hope it's the same for others. I, I picked up on so many threads that you were talking about. And um, one, of, one of the biggest threads that I, that I think about a lot is this collective memory. That, that you speak of, of everybody having all of these threads and in order for us to build the whole 
memory of times and places and spaces. We we have to collectively do this together. And I think that that's really important, especially as I listen to how everything unfolded for you and having this ongoing conversation. Like it's not just like this pivotal like moment in time of what I heard you say is like when I went into the research, this is what I wanted to do. And it was a, a really for lack of a better word, like a really colonial perspective of how I'm going to do this and then get to the other end of it, where then, as research always does, it opens, it cracks us open to go, oh, no, just wait a minute, there's so much more and so much more and more and more and more. So I love, I love that. Uh, I love the connection that these, these books bring us into walking alongside and how we do that work and that recognition of us in the classroom. And when I say us, I mean Indigenous people because um, I didn't have any of that in my education system. So I think those are so, such critical pieces um, that these, these are bringing to the table. This ongoing conversation with your dad, how has how's the work, how has it grown and changed throughout the journey? Um, I So in the beginning, my father and I you know, I think, well, I'll say that parents and children have complex relationships. And um, I, I would say that we didn't really understand each other. You know, I, I, I sort of, you know, he was an, he is an artist, he's an incredible artist. And it's not that I don't, I, you know, I've, I've always been, you know, I would paint at the studio and draw and, and things with him. Um, so it's not that I didn't understand that. But uh, I, you know, I was, I've always been passionate about education. I've always, you know, I played school when I was a child, <laughs> there was no house, we were playing school. And I, you know, those are the memories I have. And even though school was difficult for me at times, I, I think the connection to reading and, and stories was something that carried me through. And I think my father and I, I, I'm, I'm I'll speak for him, but I, I'll maybe say for me, I, I think that we sort of believed we were really different in a lot of ways. And it was quite interesting, I think, for us to begin to collaborate and I think to maybe come to an understanding, and I, I talk about it a little bit in Potlatch's pedagogy, that we're kind of both trying to achieve the same thing. There are a lot of, you know, we're really working to, um, change the world in a lot of ways and but we're approaching it differently and and he talks about in Haida Modern he talks about that you know that I I'm I am an artist but I do it with words and not uh, you know I don't paint but I think that when we wrote Potlatch's well I'll actually we'll start with with the article it was really quite funny because I I wrote the article and part of my process was to share with my father everything you know, every step of the way, I, you know, I, you know, share the transcripts or I share what I'd written. And he read it and he's like, Oh, yeah, this was a great article. And I said, Dad, you, you know, it's about you, right? Like, you know, that. <laughs> but what he really enjoyed, and I, you know, I make him sound maybe a little bit funny, but it was what he really enjoyed was seeing the connections, because one of the things we're trained to do as, as you know, in, in, um, graduate school is to connect our ideas and uh, with with those of others. And so what I had done in the article was commenting on some of the similarities between what he was sharing with me and what other Indigenous scholars had been talking about with specifically um, in connection with education. And so I think that was actually what was 
what was exciting for him is to see people from different nations or from, you know, different backgrounds having some of those same conversations as what he had had uh, been sharing with me. And so then when we wrote Potlatch's Pedagogy, I think, you know, he, he talked to me about um, being able to capture his story better than he could. And I think because he speaks through images, people will um, engage with those images, but they'll take an interpretation that is probably very different from maybe what he was intending when he does the art, whereas with words and, and with stories, we still engage with them, but it, but the connection maybe is a little bit closer to what we had intended. And so uh, for me, it was really important because it was his story that I was telling that I, that, you know, we went back and forth a lot of times to be sure that it was something he was comfortable sharing. The other part of it that was really powerful for me was to, um, when he was sharing the stories with me, when I when he was interviewing, when, when I was interviewing him and asking him the questions, just listening to uh, and learning about these parts of myself and that that he carried that I didn't necessarily know. And so I remember having a conversation with him at one point and realizing that so many of the things that I was kind of pushing up against as an educator in, in a, a mainstream um, Western institution, though those were, and I'm putting air quotes up, indigenous challenges that, that and I, I remember going home and talking to my partner and saying, I think I'm really a lot more indigenous than I ever thought, because I, I thought that so many of these challenges that I was facing were just sort of you know, Sarah sees the world differently. And so then to have these conversations with my father, I kind of started to understand where they had come from. I, I, I like to educate and, and teach through stories. Well, what does my dad do? He teaches me through stories. And so it was this opportunity to kind of see more clearly these parts of myself that I had never really understood where they came from. And so for, I think for both of us, maybe that was a really wonderful opportunity. And he talks about how important it was for him that I was asking those questions that I wanted to learn from him. Um, I think elders in, in our community, at least, have this responsibility to share knowledge. And it can be difficult when nobody's asking questions to learn more. And um, so I think for him that it, it, it meant a lot to him to have me asking those questions. And, and for me, it meant a lot that he was willing to share that knowledge with me. And I think, so, you know, we came through Potlatch's pedagogy and then we had this opportunity to do these, these picture books and the picture books were really, I would say much more personal because the first two, at least are, are stories, um, they're my father's stories. And so, um, it, I think, you know, with these stories, it was this opportunity to give my father another day fishing with his grandfather, another day learning from his father. Um, and I, for me, part of the reason I wrote them as well is because these elders are so significant and they were significant in his learning, but they're also, they've also been very significant in my learning. And um, without the commitment to oral tradition and, and the passing of stories that we used to have, you know, we, we, we tell stories differently now. And so I was concerned that these people who had 
um, played an incredible role in making sure our knowledge remained um, alive for us to, you know, know now through the potlatch band, through, you know, residential schools, um, that I wanted them to, to, to continue to be honored in our communities. And this was the only way I knew how to do that was to make sure that their stories were written down and that the roles that they played were remembered. And so what's, what's sort of beautiful for me is that, you know, my brother's children, my brother has five children and they've never met the people in these stories, but I know that they'll have this opportunity to have a connection with them, to learn from them through these stories. Um, there's a wonderful story about, uh, she was a past student of mine and um, her son, I, I sent her some books and, and her son read them uh, and he saw Chinny on the cover and he was just so excited. He said, does your, does your teacher know my Chinny? And so, <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was so beautiful because I know, I, I never knew that feeling of feeling seen in the books that, that I read. And I, I just, I've never met that, that child, but I was so excited that it meant something to him to be able to have that connection to the book. And um, so I, I think that our relationship has definitely shifted and I'm now learning to carve from him, which has been really, really interesting. Um, and, and I don't, I don't, I would never have been able to do that if we hadn't kind of made our way through these, these stories of, you know, of, of our family history. I don't think we would have been able to come to a place where, you know, he's, he's teaching me how to carve and let, let me say it's a very humbling experience because <laughs> it turns out that it does actually take what many many decades to be able to carve like he does um and I often joke that he's giving me the incorrect tools because when he uses a tool it looks it works quite beautifully and when I use the tool it doesn't have the same effect but uh, <laughs> unless he's really fast, he's uh, he is definitely giving me the tools he's using. So, but it's been really um, powerful for me to have that experience because I'm now learning through those same principles that 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 I kind of learned about in potlatch's pedagogy. So those SCADA principles, and it it makes sense that he teaches in that way. And yet I didn't until I was sitting there going in to learn for the first time, I, I didn't realize it. So um, I feel incredibly, incredibly grateful that he's willing to spend that time with me. And I'm grateful that I'm able to write about it because part of, um, you know, I, my brother was an incredible, incredible artist. And um, I know that <laughs> <laughs> I know that I will never be the artist that, that, that he is, but I think that we all have the, the gifts that we have. And what I feel like is I have this opportunity to write about learning from my father and he's an incredible teacher. And I feel like if I can write about it and share with others that, that he'll continue to teach, you know, wherever he is in the world or out of the world, um, he'll be able to continue to teach us. That's beautiful. Thank you. As long as you have the right tools, right? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. As long as he doesn't like scoop them up and pull a switcheroo. <laughs> I love that. So many beautiful connections. And, and it is, it's really truly just about connections. And I love how you pointed out that um, I wrote it down, Sarah sees things different, like sees the world differently. And totally something that I, I have felt as an educator too, walking into classrooms like, what? Like, this, what's happening here? And, um, and I think one of the biggest lessons for me was when I go into different classrooms and see other people teach, I was like, oh, right, not everybody sees this work the same way and does this work the same way. So um, navigating that, right, and being able to have others who do see the world in the same way is really critically important for, I think, for all educators, but I think especially for Indigenous educators where, where we're there's few of us in the professional education places but like your father there's so many that are in spaces where education looks different than the the education system we're in well and it's been such an opportunity to be able to just be in the studio and you know have my father hand me the knife and say figure it out you know like i'll show you once you need to you know try it practice see what happens and um, you know, experiment. Does this work? Does this not work? Occasionally, he doesn't like the way it sounds. So he comes over to check in on what I'm doing. Um, he And uh, my favorite story is, um, uh, he. so part of carving is that the, the tools have to be sharp. And I didn't realize that was such a big part of carving. And so he's got the the stone there and I was learning how to do it. And he said, yeah, it'll probably take you about an hour and a half to figure, you know, to figure this out, to be able to, you know, learn how to, how to sharpen this knife. So I was at it. I was at it. And like 45 minutes in, I was not super excited about continuing to work with this stone. So I'm like, maybe I could just show him and see, see what he thinks and, uh, you know, see if I'm getting there or whatever. And he looked at me when I brought the knife where he said, has it been an hour and a half? And I said, no, it's been 45 minutes. He's like, I'll look at it. No, you haven't got it yet. And so I went back and sure enough, it was an hour and a half before I figured out the right angles to hold the knife to the stone. But it was, it was so amazing to me. And you know, I don't think that he thinks of himself as an educator. He thinks of himself as an artist, but I would never be able to predict to the minute how long it might take for someone to learn something. And so um, it's, I think, been for for me, it's been so eye-opening to see exactly what you're saying, these different people as educators that I didn't necessarily think of them, although he's taken on apprentices for so many years. Of course, he's an educator. And um, so just to have that opportunity has been really, really incredible for me. Yeah. And, and just a side note, uh, another thing that you were saying was that he tells stories through his artwork and we all interpret it differently. And I have to say that I have never been moved to tears. Um, like I have been with some of your dad's pieces, like just mm-hmm. like it was like an internal reaction. He's so unbelievably talented. And I, I, I think, um, in terms of us being able to move forward, I think that there's a tremendous contribution that art can make because it is so accessible. And so when I was teaching Indigenous education courses, 
uh, one of the things I would do is bring in art because everybody can experience it. I don't feel, well, <laughs> depending on how we frame it, but I don't feel like we need to have a particular background to be able to engage emotionally with a piece. And I remember looking um, at a piece my brother had carved and I remember coming, you know, I, he had it um, installed on the back of his studio just to sort of, so that we could see it before it was taken to where it was going. And I remember coming around the corner and looking at it and saying, I will never be able to create something that will create the response or, you know, evoke the response that I had to his art. Um, and, and to just have that power and have that response so immediately, um, it, it, it truly is um, an, an amazing, amazing ability to be able to uh, bring so many people into an experience. And I feel like uh, we were once silenced, which is a poll that my father did, um, definitely had such a huge impact. And I think that so many people looked into the history more as a result of seeing that poll. Um, because I think that, that it's sort of an invitation to learn more and to witness the anguish on, you know, on the faces on the poll. Um, you know, we're compelled to learn more. And I, I think that's an amazing contribution that artists make in our, in our community. One other thread that I wanted to connect back to is you were talking about when you were learning from your dad, how the Scotta principles then took on a different meaning. So um, the Scotta principles are, you know, as I was saying earlier, there were themes that emerged from my father's stories. And so um, from those themes, I developed this series of principles. And um, in the first in the first paper, there were only kind of seven, but all nine were kind of mentioned. And then in the, um, you know, in, in uh, Potlatch's pedagogy, I had sort of developed the more I'd thought about them more. And so there were these nine principles. And um, so I, I'll, I'll maybe just read them for you because that might be helpful. Um, and so learning emerges from strong relationships, authentic experiences, curiosity. Learning occurs through observation, contribution, recognizing and encouraging strengths. Learning honors the power of the mind, history and story, and aspects of spirituality and protocol. And so those were the themes that just kept coming up over and over in my father's learning stories. And so I thought, oh, you know, it would be really helpful to share these just um, as an example, and I, I call it a, a like a, a localized pedagogy or, you know, we, we have these kind of broader similarities in Indigenous pedagogies, but then, then we also want to make space for these local beliefs and, and priorities in education. And so these are called the Scotta principles because, you know, they were starting to get called the Haida principles and I didn't consult the Haida nation and I didn't uh, work with anyone else other than my father. And so I, I was uncomfortable with them being labeled Haida. Um, so Skada is the Haida word for uh, learn. And it's the root word of Skadada, which means teach. And so I really love that learn is sort of at the root or at the heart of teaching in the Haida language. And so the, the focus on learning 
was really important to me because I think as educators, we can teach all day and not actually do anything. <laughs> but if we're focused on the learning that's happening, then I think it, it kind of brings us into a space where we're all working together to learn. And I, as, as kind of a philosophy, I, I, I like that as, as an approach to, to working with different people to, to learn new things. And so I had really identified those um, through my father's stories and they resonated with the experiences I had. And so at the end of the book, I do talk about the different ways that I've seen them or that I would like to see them in classrooms and in, in kind of mainstream schooling. What happened for me when I, when I first started to work with my father in, you know, with him teaching me to carve is that he started doing all of the things, you know, engaged in all the Scotta principles. And so I, and I don't know why I was surprised. We, you know, we, we teach the way we've learned and, but it was really powerful for me to have this moment in his studio of realizing this is going to be amazing. He's actually going to now use these principles to teach me. And I have this opportunity to actually experience these principles in action. And it's really helped me to have a deeper understanding of those principles and the significance of them. And as I'm working with him, I'm always thinking about, you know, um, what does this look like in a classroom? Because the reality is right now we are still teaching predominantly in classrooms. So what what do these principles look like? And it's not to say that everyone needs to be teaching Scotta principles. It's just more of a uh, an invitation for me to think about what do Indigenous pedagogies look like in the classrooms that we have right now and not to say that they won't be different and that some aren't different but you know what do they look like in these different environments so um, it's been really really a wonderful opportunity for me to learn um, from him and to also learn about indigenous pedagogies in a more deep and meaningful way oh that's so beautiful but i just it's such a gift all of the things that you're doing is such a gift to all of us who are trying to understand and trying to be able to do this work um, as you said hold hold gently in our spaces i love that and don't you love that i'm just taking notes of everything you're saying <laughs> <laughs> so that's as, wonderful as as we wrap up um, I'm just, I'm just so curious about, um, we have so many in Indigenous youth that are coming up and maybe hopefully some of them will be educators in these places and spaces. Any wise words of wisdom you wanted to share with them? No pressure. Um, well, I think I would share with them the, the story that I shared with, with those youth. Um, I've had two opportunities to speak with Indigenous youth and just the power of and, and the, the knowledge that we have in our communities, in our families, and not to undervalue that, to really see that for the incredible contributions that it can make. And I think um, what, what this what these experiences have brought me to in my own teaching, if you think about my own classrooms, um, I've been currently exploring how to use stories to educate. And um, so I've been building 
my courses around stories because of the the transformation that I experienced in my own life, engaging with stories and learning from stories. So I've been sort of exploring the possibilities. And I guess um, I, if, even if, even if, the, if, if the young folks do not end up in classrooms or spaces where storytelling and the sharing of stories is, is privileged or is um, brought into those spaces, I guess my hope is that they will continue to seek out those stories because we have so many amazing people um, in our extended community and so many stories of resilience and of strength and, and also of devastation, but the transformation that comes with that. And um, so I think that I would encourage everyone to seek out those stories um, because I think that as you were sort of talking about earlier, when we have that experience of knowing that we're not alone, knowing that there are others alongside us, even if they're just on pages, it can be very powerful and, and a way to help us through some of the most difficult experiences we'll have in our lives. And Definitely this, the past two years of my life have been unbelievably challenging. And I would, um, I would definitely recognize the role that stories have played in, in my ability to con con continue and, and to, um, to make it through some of those, those challenges and just especially like it continue it's continuing to grow that we have so many stories and I think also I guess I hope that eventually they have the courage to share their stories because I think that we are most inspired by the people who feel like um, we're most connected to or most you know related to and you know to hear someone who's maybe a couple years older than me talk about their experiences can be really inspiring and helpful um, in ways that maybe the, the superstar <laughs> Indigenous author may not be able to do in the same way. So, um, you know, I, I encourage folks to connect with those stories, to make meaning from those stories, to listen to those stories, to carry them with them, to, to, um, to continue to learn from them. I think there are so many stories that I've, I've sort of learned one thing at one point and then I connect with them again and, and something else comes. And I think that's, that's also really powerful. And so I'm grateful for all the stories that, that people have shared with me in lots of different ways over the years. And I think that, I hope that's a way forward for us. Yeah, I agree. And making, making those connections to, to others who are doing the work, right. It's, mm -hmm. it's critically important for us to be able to survive some places maybe is yeah. the term we could use um i think the yeah. the academic term is the survivance of indigenous people in spaces bringing in bringing in stories bringing in that recognition of who we are in such a beautiful way the books are beautiful you're doing beautiful you. work and i'm so thankful and so lucky to have you as a friend in this work um, i know from personal experience you've made me a better educator by being able to walk alongside of you. Thank you. Oh, uh.
Walking in Relation is hosted by Carolyn Roberts and is produced and edited by Calder Chevery. Each episode contains original music by Carolyn Roberts and Jody Prosnick, featuring Tilden Webb on piano, Jody Prosnick on stand-up bass, Ramona Elke on drum and vocals, and Dante on shakers. Musical engineering by Sheldon Zaharko and Monarch Studios. A huge special thanks to Dr. Sarah Davison, who always makes me laugh and always keeps me interested, and I always learn something new every time I talk to her. So my hands are raised in deep gratitude. Thank you, my friend, for being here today. And to Simon Fraser University's Indigenous Digital Media Grant, whose funding helped to support this project. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Take good care, everyone, and we hope that you'll come and listen again. <laughs>